morning, Thrive Church. Good morning. What an honor and what a privilege for me to be sharing the message with you this morning on Mother's Day. And um, is the mic on? The mic is on. <laughs> um, you know, it's such a special day today because... Um, like Pastor JB said, seven years ago, we dedicated our son Bradley, and uh, today we get to dedicate um, Caleb, and we thank Pastor Tim and Pastor Sandra for doing that for us, and it's just such an incredible day, because I remember last year, I was still pregnant, we weren't sure if Caleb would be born healthy, we weren't sure if, you know, he would be able to breathe when he comes out, and, um, and it's just an, an incredible day for me to stand here and to be able to stand here with Caleb in front of all of you, and so praise the Lord, praise the Lord. God is so good. God is so good. You know, over the last two weeks, we've been covering a series here called Known and Loved. And uh, two weeks ago, Pastor JB, he kicked off the series with a sermon, and the sermon title was Prioritizing Your Relationships. And he talked about prioritizing your relationships, what that means. And then last week, Pastor JB shared with us the second key to having happier and healthier relationships. And that was resolving conflicts the smart way. And if you missed that sermon, or both sermons, make sure you go online, you catch it online, because they're so good. And they will definitely help you improve in the areas of relationships. And so today, I'm here to share with you the third key. And while I'm preparing for this sermon, at the beginning of the week, I really was a bit of a, at a loss as to what I should be sharing. And so, um, you know, I have a seven-year-old, as you saw, Bradley, very handsome boy. And um, there's a little picture of him uh, from Mother's Day, like uh, his just, you know, this, these past few days. And so I said, Bradley, mommy is sharing the message this week. What do you think mommy should talk about? And, uh, you know, brilliant seven-year-olds. My, my son is brilliant. And so he goes, Mommy, that's so easy. And I was like, yes. And I was like, so what should I talk about? And he goes, Mommy, it's Mother's Day. So you should talk about how mothers get frustrated. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, really? And he, and he continues. He goes, well, you know, like frustrated, like between mad and like frustrated, it's kind of like, you know, they're kind of like um, overheated. <laughs> That's the word that he used. He said overheated. I look at him and I say, overheated? What do you mean overheated? As if I ever get overheated. And at that point, I think he's a little scared and he's kind of like, well, mommy, I mean, isn't it normal to be overheated from time to time? I mean, don't we all get overheated sometimes? And you know, truth be told, why am I telling you this story? It's because he's right. The fact is that I think every single one of us from time to time will get a little overheated. And I'm not talking about the temperature of our body. I'm talking about the temperature of our heart. It's that sometimes little things will get to us and that will kind of just, you know, like, uh, it, it will, like somebody will cut, off, cut us off in line. Like whether it's at a grocery store in a gasoline station, like whatever it is, is that sometimes our response to people can be a little overheated. You know, I remember back in 2011, and uh, there was a season in my life where I felt like I was often overheated. And I'm not sure if it was because I was pregnant with Bradley at the time. And uh, I think, you know, I was, um, I'm not sure if it was the stress hormone. I'm not sure if it was the pregnancy hormone. Whatever it was, I felt like there was a season in my life where I was just often overheated. And so, um, and so I remember there was one day, and uh, I was at church, and I was eight months pregnant at the time. And there was a little high school boy 
who uh, very awesome, very cute, and uh, adorable, uh, you know, high school boy who came up to me. He goes, Pastor Shar, is that a basketball? Your stomach looks like a basketball. And I was like, and I, I wasn't sure what, how to respond. Like, should I thank him or like, what, what should I say? Like, and um, and and he's like, and then he continues. He's like, Pastor Shar, like, it's so perfectly round and. Is, like, is the baby inside? Can I touch it? And at that point, I'm like, all right, you know what? It's a baby inside. Let's just leave it at that, okay? And, and I walk away. But the fact is, you know, dr- during that season of my life, I felt like I was often overheated over, like, just people's opinions on how I looked as a pregnant woman, all right? I mean, as a, if you've been pregnant, you're big, and you just, you feel it. But, um, and so when I, when I walked away from that, I was like, oh, does he mean, like, I'm fat? Does he mean that I, I look like a basketball? Like, does he mean, like, what, is it, what does he mean by basketball? Like, what is this, right? And, you know, when I think about it, like, um, I think maybe he, he meant that, um, you know, my stomach was round and that I wasn't flabby. And I don't think he was trying to say that I was fat, but I think he was maybe just fascinated by the fact that there's a pregnant woman walking around at Thrive Church. And so, um, you know, at that time, like, I just let things get to me, and I let them kind of linger for a little bit too long. And it wasn't just about um, my parents. It was about, like, other stuff, like stuff that would happen at work or stuff that would happen at home. Like, I would just get let little things, like, get you know, get the best of me sometimes. And one thing that I was noticing is that I was starting to lose joy, and I was starting to lose peace, and I didn't like that. I didn't like that overheated version of myself. And so there was one night, I remember there was one night I had a dream and I dreamt that I was walking on a football field and that I was wearing heels. I had a plate in my hands and a vase on top of that plate. And so I'm walking across the football field while an aggressive game of football was going on. And, uh, you know, the next second, I remember there was a ball that came flying by and it hit my vase and my vase fell onto the floor and it broke. And I was really upset. And so I turned to the person and the person, before I said anything, the person was like, it's your fault. I mean, why would you be walking on a football field with a glass anyways? And so I looked at him, he ran away and I was like, all right, maybe it is my fault. I don't know, but let's just go on. And so I kept walking. I kept walking. And for some reason in my dream, I had another plate and another vase in my hand. And so I'm continuing to walk. And the next second I know there's a, there's like a, there's some, there's, you know, a football player who tackles and he like knocks me over and like my vase kind of goes flying somewhere in the air and it cracks and falls onto the floor. And at this point I was really upset. He like ran away and, uh, and I wanted to go and run after him. And so I'm still wearing my heels. I'm like charging across the football football field trying to get to the changing room to like yell at someone for doing that to me for like for whatever they did I got to the changing room and there was no one there and so I couldn't say anything and it was at that moment that I woke up and so I woke up and uh, and I was like oh like what a dream I mean you know that feeling when you have um, a knot in your stomach and you feel like um, you just like you want to get something out you want to you want to you know yell at someone but then you can't because the person's not there and it's just that knot in my stomach and so um, I woke up with that knot in my stomach, and I, and, I, and I just decided to go and journal about it. And so I'm, I'm journaling about this, and, um, and as I'm journaling, I'm like, uh, you know, today I had a dream. I dreamt that there was, I was on a football field, blah, blah, blah. The Holy Spirit, had, I just had this, um, like, question on my heart from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was like, Charlene, that was a little silly, wasn't it? 
And I was like, yeah, God, tell me about it. That was really silly. I mean, who in their right mind would be walking across a football field with heels and a glass vase? And God was like, "Mm mm-hmm, I know, very silly. And then God goes, but you know what? You kind of do that sometimes. And I'm like, what? Lord, what? What are you talking about? And at that point, God is like, you know, that football game in your dream, that game is kind of like your life. The fact is, in life, you can never predict what is going to come and what is going to be thrown at you. And I was like, yeah, you know what? It's true, right? I mean, I think I can, I can agree to that. And, um, and then the Lord continues to go, and you know, that vase, that vase is actually your heart. And I was like, really, Lord? That vase is my heart? And God is like, you know what? Sometimes your heart is way too delicate to be going through life that way. You take offenses way too personally, and you take them way too seriously that every single time something gets thrown your way or something happens, you get upset and you get offended. And God's like, you know what? That's not the way to go through life. And if you want to go through life the right way, you've got to put on the proper gear. And um, it's one of those dreams. You know, that dream actually happened in 2011. It's one of those dreams that stayed with me because it's a reminder to me that I can't go through life with such a thin skin, that I cannot go through life letting people walk over me and be offended. And from that day on, I started to dig into the Bible about what God says about overcoming offenses. And, you know, while we cannot control what other people do, we cannot control what people might throw at us. One thing that we can control, we have absolutely 100% control over how we respond to an offense, right? And that's the message that I want to share with you today. The message is key number three, letting go of grudges. Now, what are offenses? You know, the Collins Dictionary, there's a definition online. It says, something that a person or a group of people has said or done which upsets or embarrasses you. You know, I once heard a preacher say this about um, offenses, and she says that offenses are kind of like hangnails. Do you guys know what hangnails are? Hangnails, there's a picture right here, are like little pieces of skin that's attached right next to your fingernail or your toenail, right? And um, I know I get them sometimes, and sometimes if you, like, it doesn't really hurt if you just leave it, but sometimes if you peel it, it actually might start bleeding. If you leave it, um, you know, sometimes it will start swelling, and sometimes it just, you cut it off and it just kind of goes away. Well, this preacher says that offenses are kind of like hangnails in our spirit. It causes some discomfort when people offend us. It causes some irritation. It's something small that sometimes you might just kind of bluff it off and be like, oh, you know, it's no big deal. But the fact is, it causes a little bit, discom- a little bit of discomfort. And as they build, they slowly, slowly take away the joy in our lives. And guess what? God actually doesn't want us to live that way. You know, let's look at what Bible says. Luke 17, 1. Can we read it together? It says, then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Now, what is this talking about? You know, I think there are two things that we can learn from Luke 17, 1 about offenses. 
Number one, it tells us that it is absolutely inevitable. It says it is impossible that no offenses should come. This means that no matter how hard you try to avoid a bad day, no matter how hard you try to avoid offenses coming your way in a week, in any day, in any year, the fact is they will always come because we get offended by little things, big things, little things, things on TV, things in the church, whatever. All kinds of things might actually be like offensive to us. And the Bible says, guess what? It is impossible to live without offenses. So instead of trying to focus on avoiding and preventing all of these offenses, guess what we should do? We should actually put our attention on how do we respond to them. Amen? Amen. See, the second thing that we learn, the second thing that we learn about offenses is its nature. You see, the Greek word in this verse used for offenses is a word called scandalon. And it refers to a part of a trap where the bait is attached to. And I think there's a picture on it over PowerPoint. Now, if you've never tried to trap animals, you know that traps need to have two things in order for it to be effective. Number one, it needs to be hidden in hope that the animal will stumble upon it. Like if you put it out there, the animal's just going to avoid it, right? So it needs to be hidden. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the bait needs to be inside in order to lure the animal into the trap's deadly jaws. Now, here at Thrive Church, we have amazing staff. Let's give them a big round of applause. We have amazing staff. And one of our staff, she, I consider her to be one of the most courageous girls. And, uh, you know, she's, she's rarely ever intimidated by anything. But there's one thing that she does not like. She does not like mice. And so I remember one day I'm at home, and she calls me, and she's like, Pastor Char, can you please pray for me? And I'm like, what's wrong? And she goes, there's a mouse in my room <laughs> and I'm like oh, I understand I, I I totally hear your pain and so we pray together you know the next day I think what she what they did was they uh, called a pest control and they put um, these animal traps around the kitchen the closet and all these different places in hopes to get the animal now why am I sharing that with you today and it's because the Bible tells us that the enemy sets up traps to bring people into captivity. And one of the baits that he commonly uses, guess what, is offenses. It's offenses. When we give in to an offense, when we respond to an offense, big or small, and let it consume us, feed our spirits, then we fall right into the enemy's trap. And so if we know from Luke 17:1 that it is absolutely unavoidable, it's inevitable in life, and that these are traps that the enemies have set up, what should we do? Now, before I tell you what we should do, let me tell you what we shouldn't do. We definitely should not let them linger around. And so the question is, what should we do? Proverbs 19.11. Can everyone read this with me? It says, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Now, what is this verse talking about? It's saying that if a person is patient, a person who controls, who is wise and controls his temper, a person who overlooks an offense, that person earns respect. To, even be, to be even more specific, the Bible says glory. The, the Bible uses the word glory. God considers it glory when we choose to overlook an offense. Believe it or not, our ability to overlook an offense is actually an indication of your spiritual and emotional maturity. Now, don't get me wrong. You're like, Overlooking an offense, seriously? See, overlooking an offense does not mean forgetting the, the offense. It does not mean that you should just kind of walk around and be like, 
it never happened. What, what, what? It never happened. Or go through some kind of hypnosis session and be like, I don't remember a thing. It doesn't mean that. Overlooking does not mean forgetting. It also does not mean that you should just submit to abusive people. It, does, it doesn't mean that you should, you know, you should just let people have their way, give in to everything that they're saying and their unreasonable demands, lay down your belief system, your value system, and let's just let people walk over you. It doesn't mean that either, because then that would be called a doormat. And guess what? The Bible does not call us to be doormats. The Bible calls us to be foot washers. And so then what does it mean then for us to overlook an offense according to the Bible? Can I give you a definition? I believe what it means to overlook an offense is this. Overlooking an offense is to not hold a grudge against the offender. I'm going to say that again. Overlooking an offense is to not hold a grudge against the offender. And so how do we let go of grudges? Well, I'm going to ask you to turn with me later on to a story in the Bible. But because it's a very long story, I'm going to set it up a little bit for you. See, here's some background. When God was trying to save the Israelites, his people, from slavery in Egypt, what he did was he charged Moses with leading the Israelites into the land, promised land, called the land of Canaan. And so as they're journeying through the desert, you know, the, the, the Israelites are getting kind of impatient. They're like, when are we going to get there? Oh, Moses is hot. Moses, we're hungry. Can you please give us some variety in our food? Moses, my feet are tired. Moses this, Moses that. And the fact is, like, the, you know, the Israelites were like children that, um, that Moses was kind of leading into the promised land. Well, anyways, in chapter 14, which is the chapter we're going to be looking at, in chapter 14, they're getting closer and closer now to the promised land. And, um, and God goes up to Moses and God says, Moses, go and send 12 spies to the land of Canaan and check it out. Just go and check it out. Send your 12 spies and go and check it out. And so Moses gets together 12 people and tells them to go over and just to see what it's like. And so the people go over and they're like, wow, this is a beautiful piece of land. It's spacious. It's beautiful. The fruits are so big. I've never seen grapes like that. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they loved it. But you know what happened? Ten of the spies, they looked at the land. They looked at the people and they said, but Moses, Israelites, let me tell you something. Those people over at the promised land, they are so big. They are so big. In fact, compared to them, we're like these little grasshoppers. And so they came back, and they were really discouraged. They told the Israelites, you know what? We're never going to make it. We're never going to overcome these people. We're never going to go into this promised land. And they started to grumble. They started to complain because they were scared. And we're going to look at what they said. Let's look at Numbers 14, verse 1 to 4. It says, and everyone, I'm going to ask you to read it with me. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be the better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I'm gonna, we're going to skip ahead to the 10th um, verse. And 
But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. This is Moses and Aaron. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. Now, I don't know about you, but when I heard the story, I can't help but feel a little bit bad for Moses. I mean, here is Moses. He's very, very faithfully done what he's been told to do, which is to lead the Israelites. And when they were lost, he's like encouraging them. He's saying, don't give up. He fed them. He prayed for them. And yet after all that he had done, the people wanted to stone him to death. You know, suppose you were Moses and the Israelites wanted you dead. I don't know what you would think, but I know what I would think. I would get pretty offended. I would be like, you heartless, thankless people. You know, I would, I think there's a part of me that would probably feel pretty justified to get angry and to express some self-pity towards them and towards God for just their ungrateful and complaining attitude, wouldn't you? And see, even God at this point was fed up. God was so fed up with these Israelites. Let's look at verse 11 and 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. You know what? Oh, uh, we're going to stop there for a second. And, um, and that was God's response. God's, God was mad. God was like, you know what, Moses? I see it. I hear you. I feel you. And I want to wipe these people out. I'm going to send a plague and forget it. We're just going to kill them. And then you and I, you and I, Moses, you and I, we'll go and start a new nation. That was what God had in mind. And that's what God said. And if I were Moses, I'd probably be like, great idea, God. Do this now, please. I've had enough. Please do it ASAP. Do as you say and just wipe them out. You and I, will go start a nation together, okay? But is that what Moses did? No, Moses didn't do that. You know, let's look at verse 13. Well, how did Moses respond? Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death, leaving them, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So, they, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now, continue, sorry. Now may the Lord, Lord's strength be displayed just as you declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. What is the lesson that we can learn from Moses' response? He wasn't like, God, do as you say. But you know what he did? He actually empathized with the Israelites, and he prayed for them. He prayed that God would have mercy on them. See, instead of, instead of calling down a curse, Moses did what, um, it reminds me of a verse in 1 Peter 3.8. It says, finally, all of you should be of one mind sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted, and keep a humble attitude. And that was exactly what Moses did. He sympathized with the Israelites. He heard their fears. 
He understood their faithlessness. He had empathy towards the Israelites. And what is empathy? You know, empathy is when you put yourself in the shoes of another person so that you can better understand things from their perspective and feel things from their perspective. And because he had empathy, he was able to overlook all the grumbling, all the complaints, and even when they said, we're going to stone you to death. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. And, uh, you know, the, the, like, um, there's, a, there's a story that I remember, and it's from my marriage to Pastor JB. See, we've been married for about 16 years. And um, in the first four years of our marriage, I was extremely lucky because we were in Taiwan. And so, um, you know, we lived in the building right next to where my parents lived. And so I went, Pastor JB and I went over every single day to grab a lunchbox from my parents' fridge and take it to work. And so for the first four years of my marriage, I actually didn't have to cook a thing. In fact, I don't even think in my house at the time, I don't even think if I had, like, I don't know if I had a pot or a pan. Like, I just didn't have anything. And so four years later, we come back to Vancouver. And um, at this time, you know, Pastor JB and I are stuck because my parents are not around. And so somehow I had to come up with like uh, food on the table every single night. And I really didn't know how to cook. Like I, I, you can call it spoiled, I don't know, but I have never had to cook for myself until I was about 27. And so, you know, I, I, I researched online about, like, what kind of pots and what kind of pans should I get. I looked up recipes, like, researched, and every single night felt a little bit like an experiment. Like, I would just be experimenting with, like, different things, right? And, um, and so at first, um, you know, it, it, like, he'd be like, oh, that tastes good. Oh, that's good. Like, oh, it, you know, that tastes good. And he, he would encourage me. Um, and thankfully, we, were, we didn't have kids at the time. So I would say on average, we would eat probably four times at home and three nights out. And so even if the food tastes really bad, there's the next day to compensate for it from the restaurant, right? And so it didn't really matter. But then we had kids. <laughs> we had kids. And so, um, you know, about a couple of years later, we had kids. And kids have early bedtimes. And so it was getting really difficult for us to go out to eat. And so he and I were kind of stuck at home, like not stuck in a bad way, but just we had to eat at home. And so every night I would cook. And, uh, and then, you know, as a family, we would eat together. And then we would put our little boy to bed. And after we put to bed, we clear off the dishes. Pastor JB would sometimes come up to me and go, um, yeah, I, I'm just going to step out for a sec. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And, uh, and so at first, I, I didn't know what it was for. And so sometimes, you know, he'd step out and he'd come back with a pizza. Other times he'd step out and he'd come back with a hot dog. And then, or like one of his favorites is McDonald's and Dairy Queen. And so he would step out and then he would come back with these different outside food. And so one day I was like, <clears throat> Pastor JB, um, like, is there something wrong with my food? Like, do you, do you feel like it doesn't taste good? And he's like, no, of course not. I mean, as if he would say yes, right? But he's like, no, 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 your food is really good. And I'm like, okay, then um, why do you have to step out? And he's like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like um, an extra little something. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And so it just continued. And it went on for, I'd say, months. Um, I'd say probably years. Not every single day, but years. And, um, and you know, I, I, if I had to admit, like, I think a part of me was starting to get a little bit, hurt like 
what is wrong with my food? And so I even tried like making burgers at home. I figured, you know, he likes burgers. And so I tried making burgers at home. I tried making pizza at home. And uh, I tried making steaks at home. And then there was one day, I remember we had a steak. We had a really good steak. Like I marinated the steak. We had it. We grilled a good steak. And he ate the steak and he's like, yeah, this is really good. We put the boy to bed and then he goes, oh, I'm just going to step out for a sec. And so I'm like, okay. And so he comes home with a McDonald's cheeseburger. And now I'm like, I mean, as a wife, I'm starting to get a little bit offended because I'm like, a cheeseburger and a steak? I mean, he ate the steak, right? And he's like, no, I just, I just wanted a little, like, something extra. And so um, this went on for a long time, and I think it was starting to take root in my heart. Like, I was like, what is wrong with me? And, like, what is wrong with him, right? And, um, <laughs> and so then um, I, I remember one day we're having a conversation, and uh, we're just talking about, like, foods that we ate when we were growing up. And I, I told him, you know, growing up, like, I always ate my dinners at home because my mom's a great cook, and it was healthier to eat at home because, you know, there's less sodium, there's less oil, like, there's less deep fried. And so we always ate at home and that was just that and uh and i said pastor jb how about you and pastor jb said you know we for the most part ate at home as well i said okay and he says but you know my mom she would always have like something extra takeout that she would put on the dinner table and i was like interesting and he's like yeah because i don't know and i was, and I was like why and he goes I think maybe because my mom thought that we were still hungry or just for variety, like he wanted, she wanted to give us more. And so I said, did that happen every single meal? And he's like, you know, pretty much. Like there would always be home-cooked food, but on top of home-cooked food, there would be something else. And I think that day it dawned on me that Pastor JB has been getting this something else, not because he doesn't like my food, but because this is how he grew up, and this is kind of like what his tongue is used to. And so on that day, I think I was finally able to step into his shoes, realize that, you know what, we all grow up with different foods, different cultures. And uh, for him, you know, for some people, having a Sunday, you have, it's not complete until you have a cherry on top. For Pastor JB, a, a home-cooked meal is not complete until you put a cheeseburger on top. I don't know what it is, but like, but you know, I, I started to understand. And, I, and when I understood, I was not offended anymore. Now, why am I sharing that with you today? It's because I believe that when we can step into the other person's shoes, it's a silly little story, but when we step into the other person's shoes and we empathize with them, we're much more able to overlook offenses. Amen? Amen. And so that's the first thing that I learned from Moses. The second thing that I learned from Moses, you know, I think the second thing is look to God. I was amazed because when Moses was going through what he was going through with the Israelites and when the Israelites were offending him in big ways, I don't know, but I know that sometimes I might have the tendency to go up to another person and be like, can you believe what she just said? And like, I'm talking to another person, right? And, uh, but Moses didn't do that. Moses went straight to God. And it reminds me of, of a verse in Proverbs 17.9. It says, Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Now, if we look at other translations of the Bible of this verse, what the verse actually reads is, Whoever conceals an offense promotes love, but whoever gossips about it separates close friends. And so what is the lesson? The lesson is, you know what? When we're offended, don't go to another person. Do not gossip about it. Because when you do that, 
what will happen is that you'll end up hurting the person and you might actually end up losing the friendship when you tell others about it. And it's just not the loving thing to do. Instead, what should we do? We should talk to God about it because talking to God will help you gain his perspective on it. You know, I remember years ago, there was one time I was paying my bills and I was looking through my credit card bill. And there was one day, I'm looking at the bill and there's one line that I'm like, hmm, travel expense? Like, I don't remember buying a ticket from Travelocity. And so, um, and so I'm, I'm going through it and then so I, I go up to Pastor JB and I said, Pastor JB, are you traveling and you forgot to tell me? And he's like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And so, um, and so I was like, oh, this is a little strange. So I called the credit card company. I said, you know, I, I don't recognize this expense. I, I'm not traveling anytime soon and I did not make this purchase. And the credit card company was like, hmm, that's interesting. Let me look into this for you. And as they're kind of looking into this, investigating, a couple days later, I received a phone call, and it was from a good friend of mine. And, uh, and, and sh she was on the other end. She was like, Shar, um, I just have to tell you something. And I'm like, oh, what? And she's like, um, you know, the other day, like, uh, I, um, I'm really sorry, but I, like, I, I, uh, I saw this flash sale for the t the, a trip that I was going to make to, um, to another city. And, uh, and it was a flash sale for just the next two hours. And I don't have a credit card. And I remember, you know, like months ago, we had to buy something. And so I have your credit card in my notebook. And so I decided to just use your credit card. And, uh, and when I heard that, I was like, ooh, like, hmm. And, and you know, my heart, I think, was... Uh, maybe a little offended. I was like, hmm, like I, I, I'm totally fine with letting her use it, but I kind of wish that she would ask me before she does that. And, uh, and so I said, you know what, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But I think deep down, um, there was that little nudgy feeling of like, hmm, it doesn't feel that great. And should I cancel my card? Like, what should I do? And so I took it to prayer. And when I prayed about it, I feel like God gave me his perspective. Um, you know, this friend of mine was just traveling um, and here short term for not a long time. And, um, and she doesn't have a credit card here in Vancouver. And in fact, she grew up with not a lot of material goods. Um, you know, she, she comes from a very um, harsh background and, uh, she, um, and, and she just didn't have a lot. In fact, like the way we met her was because Pastor JB and I were in Taiwan. We were leading a small group and she came to the small group and she accepted Jesus. And from that day on, she said, like she's felt a sense of belonging in the church and in the small group that she's never known before because she was adopted. And so, you know, when I started praying about it, I, like, I think my heart just really went out to her. And, um, and as I prayed about it more and more, it just seemed like the offense was not so big anymore. And it didn't matter that much. I mean, she was still a great friend and I still love her. And so because I was able to just kind of talk to God about it, God gave me his perspective. I was totally over, like, able to overlook this offense. And I, I called her and I said, you know what, don't worry about it. It's totally fine. Don't worry. Um, you know, you, you, like, and she's like, oh, don't worry. Like, I will never do that again. I'm like, you know what, it's totally fine. Like, next time if you need it, just let me know. It's totally okay. And so praise God. Because of God, because of Jesus, I'm able to focus on the person and not so much the offense and what she did wrong. And I'm able to gain a strength to overlook offenses that I didn't know I had before. Amen? Amen. The third point that I want to share with you from Moses' story, it's focus on the big picture. Focus on the big picture. You know, in the midst of being slandered, in the midst of being threatened to be killed, Moses, amazingly, he never lost sight 
of the big picture and what God wanted to do with the Israelites. He always knew that we're in the desert. It's a temporary time. They're complaining, they're whining, but we're actually going somewhere. We're going to the promised land. And he pled on behalf of the Israelites for God to have mercy on them. You know, it reminds me of a story in, um, uh, like, uh, that I once read. And it's, it's about uh, Elizabeth Elliot, who's a missionary back in the 1950s. Now, Elizabeth Elliot, back in the 1950s, um, there were five missionary families, including herself and her husband, Jim Elliot, from the Wycliffe Bible translators who travel with their children to the jungles of Ecuador in South America and prayed that they might share God's word with a tribe called the Aka Indians who lived there. Now, the Aka tribe, they were these warring, primitive people who did not trust their civilized neighbors. And so, you know, they were, they were praying about, you know, what, how should we do this? What should we do? How do we reach out to them? So what they did was they brought a lot of gifts, and they sent gifts ahead of them to the Aka Indians. And then one day, the five men, the five men in these families decided that they were going to trek out into the jungle to meet with the Aka Indians. And one of the missionaries, he told his wife, he said, Honey, wait for my call tonight. I'm going to call you from the two-way radio. Wait for me. On that night, his call never came through. And so when the wives started wondering where could they be, they sent the authorities into the jungle to find them. And what they ended up finding was they found five dead bodies in the jungle, brutally cut to death by the Aka swords and their spears. Elizabeth Elliot, she was one of the widows. And, um, and, and, she, and she kept her eyes focused on the big picture. She was grieving the loss of her husband, and yet she said, you know what? I believe that God brought us here for a reason. I believe that our husbands have not died in vain. I believe that God still wants to finish the work that he is doing with the Aka tribe. And so what she did with another missionary wife was they went into the Aka tribe. They walked through the jungle to exactly where their husbands were killed, and they stayed there. And they were committed to sharing the gospel with the Aka tribe. For the next several years, they decided to learn their local language. And they continued to share the gospel with them. They continued to live with them. They continued to reach out to them. And Elizabeth Elliot's write in her book, Through the Gates of Splendor, that one day, in the entire tribe became believers in Jesus Christ. Let's give God a big hand in this place. And why am I sharing that story with you today? You see... Elizabeth Elliot, even though she was offended, she had every single right to be offended because her husband was killed by the Aka Indians. Yet, what did she choose? She chose to focus on the big picture. You know, Moses and Elizabeth Elliot, I believe, are not the only two who did that. Do you know who else did that? God did that for you and for me. You know, the Bible says that when we had offended God with our sins, when our sins were separated from God, God focused on the big picture. Do you know what that big picture is? That big picture is, ha is having a relationship with you and with me for an eternity. And because God loved us so much, he didn't want us to see us separated from him forever. So what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and to pay for all of our debts and to forgive us all of our offenses. And so that 
we, he can focus on the big picture so that we can live out that big picture of a relationship with God. Not just yesterday, not today, but for an eternity. Jesus, through Jesus Christ, God focused on that big picture so that we can have an eternity with him. With that in mind, I mean, is there a situation in your life where you need God to reset a big picture? Is there an offense in your life right now that you're having a really hard time moving forward and you're, you're harboring resentment and bitterness and anger and you need God to reset that big picture for you? Last point, and we're going to close today. The last point that we learned from Moses' life is let God deal with the offender. Let God deal with the offender. You know, when the incident happened with the Israelites complaining, grumbling, wanting to threaten and stone Moses, Moses didn't jump and try to defend himself. He didn't try to save and preserve his life. In fact, he didn't deal with the Israelites. He went to God and he simply like, asked God to forgive them and trusted that God would deal with them. And God absolutely did because he is just. See, in Numbers 14, 20 to 23, can we read this together? It says, The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me contempt will ever see it. You see, God forgave the Israelites, but he still carried out the judgment on those who doubted him by not letting them enter the promised land. And so what are two things that we learn? Number one, forgive. The first thing that God God did was he forgave. You know, if you have your Bible with you, go back to Numbers 14, 20 and underline or circle, I have forgiven them. If somebody wronged you today, Can I ask you to do something? Don't wait for an apology. Don't wait for the person to come up to you and apologize. Because the fact is, that person actually may never apologize. That person actually may not even know that you are offended. And if you sat there and kept waiting and let that root of bitterness and resentment and hatred build up, it's not going to be pretty at all. And guess what? It's because God forgave us. And so the word says that because Jesus forgave us, we also need to forgive others. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And so don't hold on to it. Don't hold on to the grudges. Don't hold on to the unforgiveness. Because when you do that, do you know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like you taking a cup of poison, drinking it down, and thinking that the offender is going to be harmed by it. No. The offender is not, nothing is going to happen to the offender. But the person who is being poisoned, it's actually you. And so we need to forgive because God forgave us first. Do you know why else you need to forgive? See, the second reason you need to forgive is because you're going to need it more. You're going to need more forgiveness in the future. See, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. The Bible is really clear about that. If we don't choose to forgive, then then we are not going to receive forgiveness. It's a two-way street. You know, someone once told John Wesley, who is an extremely famous theologian, he said, 
I can never, I can never forgive that person. And you know what John said? John Wesley turned to that person and said, well, you know what? Then I really hope you never sin because you don't want to burn the bridge that you've got to walk across to get to heaven, right? And so when you forgive, you're not letting the other person off the hook. You're actually freeing yourself. Tell the person next to you, you're freeing yourself. And what's the other thing that we learned from Moses? You know, Moses didn't just tell God, forgive. Moses actually overcame evil with good. There's a verse in the Bible, Romans 12, 19, it says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge, avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so what do we learn? Don't take revenge, but let God deal with the offender. He will. Will you trust that he will because he is a just God? Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive today? You know, when I look at the way that Moses responded to his offense, when I look at the way that he treated the Israelites, I can't help but admire him for his incredibly big heart and his ability to overlook offenses. You know, he had every right to be angry. I think I can understand and I can relate, especially after being a mom, is that sometimes you'll go through days where you'll hear a lot of different whines and complaints. And he was angry. I mean, like Moses had every right to be angry. And the fact is they wanted to stone him. Why wouldn't he be angry? But Moses, he also knew that if he responded that way, then it wouldn't please God. And do you know why? It's because if he responded that way, his response would be considered normal. It would be considered ordinary. But God did not make him, and God did not make us to be ordinary. God made us to be holy. And what does it mean to be holy? See, holy means that we respond to offenses with love. It means that we are willing to cover over wrongs. It means that we respond with patience. It, remind, it, it, it means that we respond with kindness. And most importantly, it, it, it means that we actually forgive. You know, maybe you're in this place right now and you've gone through a big thing. Maybe it's with your friend. You've been offended by your friend. Or maybe you've been offended by um, a classmate. Or maybe it's a coworker. Or maybe it's a relative. Or maybe it's in your marriage where you're offended and your spouse did something that is incredibly wrong. You know, whatever it is that you've been offended by. Maybe before today, before you came today, you felt like you had every right to hold on to that grudge and that you had every right to hold on to that bitterness. You know what? It's understandable because you're hurt. And when we're hurt, it hurts, right? But can I tell you something? If you responded in that way, in, that, in, in, in anger, in frustration, if you responded in those ways, God says that, you know, we'd be ordinary. We're, we're just normal. We're just humans. And God understands. But I believe that God is wanting you and wanting me to respond in a holy way. What would your relationships look like if you responded in a holy way? If you responded to offenses with love? If you responded to offenses with forgiveness?